one of the things I have tried to do now for about 10 or 15 years since I started preaching every week was to be uh, very thorough and very clear when I teach the Bible. I, I, I'm almost, I wouldn't say superstitious, but I have a real fear and trepidation when it comes to opening up God's book if I have not studied it uh, fairly diligently, if not very diligently, and dare stand up and tell people what I think it says. Somebody shared with me years ago, he said, if your people want gourmet food on Sunday morning, you better spend gourmet time in the kitchen preparing that food, or, or you're just going to be sloppy. And, and I've taken that very much to heart, and so thankfully, I get feedback every now and then that people appreciate the clarity and thoroughness that I have in presenting biblical truth. The reason that that's important for you to know this week and next week is that we are going to be looking at some rather difficult topics, or a difficult topic that we're going to take two weeks to look at, in which now for 2,000 years people have struggled to get clarity on. And though I'm going to strive to be as clear as I can on this, we are going to open up a can of worms just by looking at this topic that I hope to help us wrestle through and kind of go through the tunnel of chaos and come out the other side intact. But, but it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride for some of you. So hang on to your pew with where we're going uh, the next couple of weeks because we're going to take a look at this whole idea of God's election and God's chosenness, and God's grace, and his absolute sovereignty, and how that bears on your life and your salvation. You know, it's funny, the more Calvinist-minded people in our church say to me on a regular basis, why don't you talk more about this issue? And I'm like, well, because the Bible doesn't lead me there yet, you know, and I, I'm exegetical in the way that I teach the Bible, which means I, I, I follow it as it guides me. Well, here's the good news. It leads us there today. As we're making our way through Romans, this is precisely where the scriptures lead us to as we nudge into chapter 9 and then a little bit next week into 10 and 11. And yet I love this subject. You're going to hear as we go along today, I am obsessed with the fact that God chooses and that his sovereignty is unshakable and that that has profound implications on my life and I believe yours. So with that said, why don't you bow with me and let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, thank you for... Uh, who you are, as Troy reminded us by quoting Wayne Grudem, that the, the composite of your character and your nature and your attributes reminds us how beautiful and awesome and glorious you really are. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up your book right now and, and try to understand what has been a relatively difficult chapter for a couple thousand years now for people, uh, I pray, God, that you might help us to understand it rightly and Lord, more than anything, apply it aggressively to our lives and to our own souls. Because we know, Lord, as we do that, you'll be glorified. And that's our end goal. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all God's people say together, Amen. Amen. Uh, well, as I uh, hinted with you today before I prayed, and you've got to laugh at this a little bit, I, I can just promise you that in about 30, 35 minutes when we're done, what I'm going to share with you will be the, either the greatest, biggest insult you've ever had to your freedom in your entire life, or it's going to be the greatest comfort your soul has ever heard. 
I'm telling you, it's just a polarizing topic, this idea of God's sovereignty and the fact that he chooses. We either feel insulted in our autonomy or we feel incredible comfort in our soul. And I'm going to argue and vie that you and I should feel comfort. So what am I talking about? Some of you are still kind of confused. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's your main point this morning as we make our way through Romans. Here's what the book of Romans, and then you're going to see other parts of the Bible affirm about who God is and the salvation we have in him and that is if you are a Christian here today here's what the Bible says about you in Jesus Christ God has chosen you he has chosen you to be saved and it's all about his mercy and his grace that's the only thing I need you to latch on to today we're going to unpack this but that's my main point if you're a Christian here today the Bible says that in Jesus Christ God has chosen you not vice versa and it's all about his mercy and grace now, now listen closely, folks, to what I'm saying. As most of us know here at Scottsdale Bible Church, the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has given us a provision for salvation, his son Jesus and his death on a cross for our sins, and now he asks us to accept or receive that provision by faith. That, that's the gospel. So when you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, it says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, here it is, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So God has given us a provision, a way out of our sin, and the Bible says it's a free gift, we can't earn it, it's not of our own doing, it is God who made the move, God who provided for us Christ, and that we now, if we're going to experience salvation, need to respond and respond with saving faith. We need to accept Christ. We need to receive him. And it's only when you come to the point that you accept Christ as Savior and Lord that you experience this provision of salvation. So, so I know it sounds so simple to some of you because you're like, gosh, we talk about this all the time here. You're right. But just track this. An offer is given. It's a freely given grace move on God's part to give us Jesus. And we are called to receive and respond with faith. And so tell me if this isn't true. What many people do then with this interaction between them and God is that they walk away from it thinking, they walk away from it thinking that God has been so wonderful in giving us this free gift in Jesus Christ apart from our good works. And isn't it likewise wonderful that we woke up and took God up on his offer and responded with faith and trust in Jesus? That's the way most of us think. But we never say it, but we're kind of like saying, isn't this a great joint venture with God? Isn't this a great shared partnership? Well, obviously, we don't mean it's 50-50. I mean, when you compare our faith and Christ's sacrifice, it might be more like 95-5 or 99-1. But we still see it as somewhat of a shared venture, our salvation. Isn't it wonderful that God gave us Christ? And isn't it likewise wonderful that I responded in saving faith? So we see it as God's big part, maybe our smaller part, and yet it's all wonderful. This is how many people see their salvation. And if you've ever seen your salvation this way, or if you know of somebody that sees their salvation this way, I'm here to try to convince you today, that is not quite how God sees it. And that's not quite how the Bible, specifically the book of Romans, and you'll see other parts as well, paints the picture at all 
of what has happened between you and God. I mean, true, the offer is given solely by His grace. Romans 3.24 is clear. But get this, Romans is also going to make it clear that your personal response to the offer, your faith and trust in Christ is also a gift of His grace. In other words, when it's all said and done, this is why I say if you're saved here today in Jesus Christ, the Bible says God has chosen you, not vice versa. And it's all about His grace. So, so why is this so? What are we talking about here? I, I want to unpack this today by, by having you turn to one of the most difficult Bibles, or difficult Bibles, difficult chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 9. It's a chapter, i got to tell you, that many people have a problem with, both in understanding what it's saying as well as in accepting what it is concluding. But you and I can't shy away from this today. This is a chapter we have to contend with in our theology and in our understanding of God. At Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 9 through 13, and some of you won't get it at all as I'm reading it, but, but you will in about 5 or 10 minutes as we explain it. But look at what the Scriptures say, Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. For this is what the promise said, about this next year, I will about this, this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. Now, I, I know some of you think, you're thinking, what in the world is that saying? It's really not as complicated as it might look at the outset here. You just need to understand two things to understand what this passage is getting at. But you understand this, you'll get it. Uh, the first thing you need to understand is that this passage in context is simply likening our personal salvation, our individual salvation, that's the context of Romans, with a couple of players in the Old Testament. It's a comparison, it's an analogy that this text is doing here. It's a parallel, comparing how God has worked in our personal salvation with how he worked in some Old Testament leaders' lives thousands of years before this. And so track now the comparison with that understanding. It mentions Sarah, Abraham's wife, way back in Genesis. And then their son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebekah. You might remember that Abraham was the father of the nation Israel, called to lead and start the nation Israel, and that God was going to bless Abraham and all of his descendants. He was going to bless them and continue on the nation Israel through his family. So like, once you get that, it's really important you, that you understand who Abraham's kids and grandkids are. So they tell us here in this story. And you might remember all the way back from Sunday school that Isaac and Rebekah, uh, Isaac is Abraham and Sarah's son, and he marries Rebekah, and then they had twin sons, Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau. And here's where the problem comes in. Jacob and Esau were twins. So which one of them gets to be the one to lead the nation Israel? Which one of them gets the blessing? Well, in that culture back then, whichever one came out first. Whichever one was technically born first in that culture would be the one who was the oldest son and an heir to the nation. And yet what this text is telling us here, what Genesis writes about after chapter after chapter, is that God doesn't choose Esau. He chooses Jacob. 
So don't miss that. That's key to what we're going to put together here in a minute and how Romans uses this Old Testament story and ties it to our salvation. And that is that God, in all of his mysterious and unrevealed wisdom, chose Jacob to be the leader, even though Jacob wasn't the oldest son. And he didn't choose Jacob because Esau was some schlock. He didn't choose Jacob because he knew that Esau was going to do something bad. In fact, it makes a strong point of saying, before any of them had done anything either good or bad, not because of their works, but simply because of God's own purpose, because of, and I quote, of him who calls, God chose Jacob. So, so add this all together. God went against the rules of the firstborn son to be the leader, and he chose Jacob to be part of his redemptive plan in moving Israel along. And he did so without asking anybody's opinion. He did so without even considering what they wanted. He did so, as the text tells us, by his own will, his own choosing. And now somehow Romans is tying this in to our own personal salvation. So let's tie it together now. Two points I want to leave you with here today. Two points that I think flow right out of this, that this is more than insinuating, it's, it's teaching when you understand what the text is saying. The first one is, is that it's telling us then that he chose you when you got saved. When you came to him in Christ, he chose you, and it was not based on anything that you did or didn't do. He chose you. He gave you the awareness of your sin, the understanding of his truth. He brought the people into your life who helped you all along the way, the friends, the family, the church, the evangelistic event, whatever it was. He even, as we're going to see in a second here, gave you the faith and the ability to choose him that so seemed like your doing at the time, it was given to you, the Bible says, by his grace. He chose you, period. And again, I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, Jamie, that's, that's an awful lot to grab from like this text that's comparing it back to the Old Testament and you're tying in there and then making the parallel here. I mean, tell me that there's more. I'm so glad you asked. There is. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 6, where I'm telling you, you can't reformat this passage in any other way than what it says. It couldn't be more clear. Wrestle with this one. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Even as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, referring to Jesus. Wow, he chose us who would come to believe in Christ before even time began to his praise and glory. If that's not enough, let's put a nail in the coffin on this issue. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. Again, it's very clear. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, most Bible scholars at this point would say that this refers to the grace, the salvation, and the faith, the whole kit and caboodle. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that nobody can boast. There it is, folks. Your entire salvation, the entire process of it, from start to finish, was and is God's doing. He chose you, and all the aspects of you coming to him 
were ultimately of his doing and calling. And again, God knows how we think. We think, well, yeah, I know he looked ahead in time and he chose me, but he had to have done it based on how he knew I might respond. Like he did it based on some good things that he'd know I'd do, that my heart was right and that I was really attuned to him and all that. No, 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 they've already thought of that. And God says that's not what was at play. Look at verses 11 and 16, going back to Romans 9. Look up here on the screen. It says, though they, meaning the twins, Jacob and Esau, remember the comparison, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Then verse 16, this is a knockout punch. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Most commentators point out there when it says there so that it does not depend on human will or exertion, that it's referring to human desire and human execution. Isn't that interesting? So Paul's just knocking out all the stilts before we can even put them up. He's saying, he's saying it doesn't depend on whether you wanted to be saved. doesn't depend on even what you did. doesn't depend on whether you sold Girl Scout cookies for half price or walked little old ladies across the, 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 the road. It doesn't depend on any of that. It, it, all it depends upon is on God who chooses and who saves. And it was not based on anything that you did or didn't do. Folks, just, just rest Pause a second in front of this. The Bible makes it very clear, I think, that, that, that your salvation was a choice of God. He chose you. And once you get that, once you use that as your starting point, now we got some other issues to contend with. And we're going to contend with them a little bit this week and more next week. But, but once you get this, it is a mind-blowing concept. And once you grab onto this, it does start to feel like a little bit of an insult to our autonomy, doesn't it? I've been wrestling with this now for 30 years. I, for some reason, I don't know why, we tend to expose brand new Christians to this debate. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, like when somebody gets saved, you're like, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? You know, and you're like, oh, I'm saved. That's what I am. I mean, you know, and we kind of bring them into this debate right away. So I hadn't been a Christian for more than like six months, and people are putting this issue in front of me. And I can remember one of the first times that I, I heard this debate, I thought, well, what do you mean I didn't, I, what do you mean God chose me? I mean, it's kind of a joint venture. I chose him too. I'm free. I'm autonomous. And then I started looking more at the Word and the Bible, and one thing I couldn't escape is that no, God says he chose me. You know, Paul the Apostle will even go on in this text here. It's kind of funny. He, he plays lawyer against himself. We don't have time to read it, but he'll go on to, to give an argument that people might give against this. Like he goes on to insert an objection here in which he basically says, well, you know, if this is so that God is the one who's done the choosing, then who can ever resist his will? We're just like puppets on a string. It's determinism. I mean, where does our autonomy and choice come into play? There has to be something other than God choosing something in and around our lives that would cause God to choose, right? That just makes sense. And folks, it's fascinating. Over the last 2,000 years, very smart men and women have been like pounding the theological pavement, the philosophical pavement, trying to find something that we could point to that God might have looked at in our lives and said, that's why I chose Geno. That's why I chose you. Something that we can point to that made him want to choose us. And every time we go down that road, I don't think it does any justice to the text. One of the greatest examples of this was by a theologian 500 years ago by the name of Jacob Arminius. 
He's the father of what has become known as Arminian theology today. And what Arminius essentially argued is that the reason that God would choose some for salvation was on the basis of what he called foreseen faith. And he said that's not a good work. A work faith is not a work. And he argued that what God basically does is look ahead in time, because he's God and he can see anything, and he would see those who would freely choose him in Christ. And for those that would in the future choose him, God then chose them back, put his seal on their lives, and those are the ones who would be saved. Arminius called it foreseen faith. And so to try to fit this into the scriptures, he read verse 11 of Romans 9 this way. Look up here on the screen. This is kind of fascinating. He read the text this way. Though they, the twins, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, and then here's his inclusion, but because one was going to have faith, which is not a work, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, Here's a second inclusion. But because of foreseen faith, God calls and saves. So do you see what he does here? Basically, he posits that though God's choice in salvation was not based on any good works, God's choice, however, was based on who would demonstrate faith or not. And he argued that faith wasn't a good work. It's simply a response that we have to God. God looked ahead in time. saw who would choose him, and those are the ones that he likewise chooses. And though there are many that believe this today, I mean, let's be fair, there are are many who believe the Bible is the Word of God, and they exist in wonderful churches, and and this is how they, they opt for the solution to the dilemma that God's choosing creates. I don't think that you can get away with this from the text, or even when you understand the implications of God's choosing. I mean, there's no mention at all of foreseen faith in this text. In fact, the opposite is true. Paul does tell us, as we'll see in a second here, on on what is it that caused God to choose some, and God clearly says, my mercy, my purpose, my plan. That's why I choose. Nothing at all mentioned there about foreseen faith. And and, and if really, in verse 11 there, foreseen faith is is what is at play, then you would think that when Paul, a couple verses later, throws out that objection that I mentioned where he says, well, then, you know, how is this fair? I mean, you know, God's deterministic. God's the one who's calling all the shots. He would have clearly then at that point said, no, you guys don't get it. You see, there's this thing called foreseen faith, and God would look ahead in time, and he'd see who would choose him, and that that was the basis of God's choosing. But Paul doesn't do any of that. There's no idea of foreseen faith in play here. And even if you can convince yourself that Arminius was right and that foreseen faith is in play here, you still got to contend with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and other passages that make it clear that even the faith we have is a gift of God. Romans 12, 4 says everybody's given a measure of faith, and that faith is given to us by God. It's his gift. I mean, folks, i got to tell you, I feel the insult to my autonomy in this, and we're going to wrestle with this next week as we deal with some objections. And so I've been very tempted over years to try to find some nice human basis that would help me understand why God chose me and why God chose you. But as far as I see it, the scriptures don't give us that option. It simply says that for those who have responded to Christ's offer in faith and received him, that though it felt like they were the ones doing it, God says in hindsight, make no mistake, I chose you. It was my sovereignty that was in play in your salvation. And so here's what we need to wrestle with next once we get that. And 
You know, there's some things when our, our kids, you know, um, ask us a question or there's an issue in their lives. And have you ever found yourself saying to your kid, you're not old enough to understand that, so I don't want to talk to you about that? You ever said that to your kid? A lot of us have. A lot of us, when something is too heavy for our kids to understand, whether it be a sexual issue or, uh, you know, something, harsh reality of the world, we say to them, you're, you're just too young to understand that, so we're not going to talk about that son or we're not going to talk about that daughter. Some people have said, why does God even bring this up to us then? This idea of him choosing us when he knows that it's really hard for us, if not impossible, to get our heads and hearts. Why doesn't he just say to us, you know what, you aren't going to get it anyways, so just table that issue and, and, and we'll deal with it in heaven. Why does God even bring it up in the scriptures? What's the point of him telling us and messing with our will by saying, hey, by the way, I chose you? And there's an answer to that. And the text gives us the answer. And this is where I hope to turn you in your thinking if you've been one of those people that just feels insulted by this. So I want to help you see the great magnitude and compassion and comfort that this truth can give us. And it's my, my, my second point of my, my own my two points. And that is that he chose you because of his own mercy, plan, and purposes. That's what the scriptures want us to latch on to when we realize God is the one who does the choosing. He chose you because he loves you and because his mercy and his plan and his purpose has been poured out on your life. And though you may never understand why you and what about others, we'll talk about that next week and how that kind of fits in. Don't miss what the scriptures conclude here. Look at verses 9, 15, and 17. One last look at Romans 9. It says, though they were not yet born, again the twins, and had done nothing either good or bad, now here it is, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. For the scripture says of Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what does God say? He says he chose you because in his mysterious and not always revealed purposes and plan for your life and for this world, you're involved in it. He chose Susan because he loves Susan. He has a plan for, his li for her life. He chose Gino because he loves Gino. And he has a plan for his life. And those whom he chooses, he calls into his kingdom. And though I'm going to give you a very extreme, or extremely practical and comforting outpouring of all of this in just a minute, the response that I believe you and I need to have to this, I would simply submit to you, for those of you who still feel insulted by this, that there are plenty of examples in your life where there has been a choice made around you that's influenced your life, that you didn't fully understand at the time, but in hindsight, you were really glad the choice was made. In other words, this idea of God choosing and then us not knowing why he chooses but being thankful later that he did, we have that experience in smaller ways in life all the time. If I followed you around for the next day, I, I promise you I could find an example of something that happens to you probably this week in which there was a choice made in and around your life, sometimes even big choices, that affected you and you didn't get at the time. In fact, it was very confusing to you at the time, but later on, you were very, very glad that that choice was made. We have that experience in life. You're saying, like what? Well, your spouse chooses a career change, 
and at the time you think it's crazy, only to get the first paycheck and you say, good move. Or how about when your kid marries somebody? This happens all the time. And you're kind of leery of the spouse that he or she is marrying. And then three years later, they deliver up that beautiful grandkid. And you say, good choice. Or or how about when your business makes a business decision? At the time, you don't get it. You go, my gosh, in this economy, you're going to make that decision? What a bonehead move for my company to make this move. Only next Christmas, you get a really good bonus. And you say, I'm so glad they made that decision. See, life is filled with lots of examples in which you and I experience decisions made upon our lives because we're only finite. They're all decisions all the time around us. We don't get it at the time. We fight it at the time. We might even think it's not fair at the time. And yet later on, we see that there was great purpose and plan, and we're thankful. I think that once you understand that, once you understand that this is how life works, you can start to understand a little bit of how God might function with you and me. That in the Bible's insistence that God is the one who does the choosing in Christ, that for those of us who believe, all we show is that we've been chosen, is that we start to understand that there's great purpose and plan to God's rhythm. And though we don't understand why he chooses, at the same time, we start to take comfort that he does. We start to realize that God has a plan. The guy come up to me after the last service when we did our veterans thing and he said 42 years ago I was in the war and he said you know every veterans day now I I literally physically just shake. I just it brings up all the memories all the stuff all the crud and and I just shake and he said and, and I'm so thankful that my church does a veterans day Remembrance, because usually, the, even though the four or five minute slot we do in the prayer actually helps me stop the shaking and calm down a little bit. He said, but you know what helped me more than anything today? He said this teaching. He said, today was the first time that I've ever realized in my entire life that God had a plan for me. And that God has a purpose for my life. And that he called me into his kingdom. And there's no accident that I'm here. And he said, when I realized that, when that started to sink in, And I realize his sovereignty at that level, though I still can't answer all the questions with it. He said, I stopped shaking. He just shared that with me about a half an hour ago at the end of our last service. Next week, I'm going to continue part two of this look that I am chosen. And I'm going to dive into the deep end of trying to deal with free will and responsibility and yours and mine's responsibility when it comes to our choices and how that fits with sovereignty. I'm going to deal with some of the formidable objections that people have to this teaching that we've looked at over the years and how people try to make sense of it. And and I'm sure I might even be able to take some of the edge off of this for some of you who care, though I won't be able to take all of it off because you're going to see next week a lot of this ends in a a mystery. Both sides, if you will, both ends of the the theological spectrum end in mystery. But what you need to know more importantly is that I purposely didn't want to go that far today. I didn't want us to get into the objections today. My whole goal today, church, was to just lay out what the Bible says about you being chosen, let you feel a little bit of the insult, but also challenge you now to pause there, to pause in front of this teaching that God is the one who chooses and thank him for it and see what that does to your soul. 
Whether you understand it or not, here's what I think many Christians do, and this is what happened to me when I first became a Christian. We hear this teaching about God's sovereignty and his election and his choosing, and you know what we immediately do? We immediately run in our minds to try to explain it. We immediately go to the objections. We go to the big buts. But if this is true that, but if this is true that. And before you know it, we've failed to even appreciate what the teaching is. But we're going to go to some of the buts next week. We're going to go to some of the objections next week. I'm not going to side skirt them. But if you fail to pause in front of this teaching that God chooses, that he is that powerful, that good, that gracious, then here's what you'll fail to do. You'll fail to be grateful and thankful to him for his movement in your life. And that's your response. Give me a click here, guys. Your response, once you pause in front of this, is simply to be grateful and thankful that God is the one who chooses. When I was uh, in college and I was, knew I was going to be a minister because I didn't want to do anything else, and I thought, gosh, they're going to pay me to talk about Jesus. I'm in. And, uh, and so I knew that my calling was sure then. I, uh, I, I was really wrestling with this whole issue here of God's choosing. I'd read a couple systematic theologies, one from the J- Jacob Arminius camp and one from what we call the more John Calvin camp, and I was, and I was actually wrestling with, with the insult that I felt to my freedom, and I, I was really, really bugged by this. I mean, some of you have been too. I was really bugged by this. And, and, and one day I was walking across campus, and I, I guess I had a furrowed brow because I was just beaten down by this issue, and I thought, how can this be? I don't get it, and da 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 and, and John Reist, who eventually would become the dean of students at Hillsdale College, then was just a professor, a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, Divinity School. John Reist saw me and he said, Rasmussen, you look beaten down. What's bothering you? And, and I told him, I said, I'm wrestling with this whole issue of sovereignty and autonomy and my choice and God's choice. And how can it be? I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. And, you know, da, 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 and I told him about these commentators I read and all this. And I'll never forget what he said to me. This is from a Ph.D. He goes, Jamie, this isn't difficult. He says, at the end of the day, either God chose you or you chose him. He said, and both aren't true. Ultimately, one's going to have to trump the other. He said, ultimately, you're either going to rest on the fact that God was in control of your salvation or you're going to side with the fact that, no, you held the final trump card. And he said, I don't know about you. I'd rather think that God was in control. And then he walked away. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm with him. I, I, I would rather believe that God is the one who's ultimately in control of my salvation, my life, than me. Henry Nouwen, before he died, wrote an article in Christianity Today magazine called Life of the Beloved, Spiritual Living in a Secular World. And in that article, he gave what I think is one of the best descriptions of our response to this idea of God's election than anything I've ever read. I want to close with it today. I, I hope you can embrace this. Look up here on the screen. Now it says, you have to celebrate your chosenness constantly. This means saying thank you to God for having chosen you and thank you to all who remind you of your chosenness. Gratitude is the most fruitful way of deepening your consciousness that you are not an accident, but a divine choice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that though we can't always explain the ins and outs of it, even when we look at the objections next week, we're probably still going to be frustrated. But I thank you, God, that one thing your scriptures make very, very clear is that your sovereignty is unshakable and your choices are your choices. 
And that, God, when we look at our salvation, you've made it clear that you have chosen. Before the foundation of the world, you have chosen. And, Lord, I'm so grateful for that. I thank you, Lord, that you took me, as Psalm 40 says, out of the muck and mire, and you placed me on dry ground. And that, Lord, in my stuckness, in my being dead in trespasses and sins, you made me alive together with Christ. And, God, I pray that these dear people can see that for their own lives and have a response of gratitude and gratefulness as well. Father, I pray that these types of teachings would never divide our church, but that, Lord, that this would only unite us. We have a lot of theological breadth in our church here, Father. What we rally around is your word. We rally around the Trinity. We rally around the resurrection. We rally around the unshakable truth of who you are. And so, Father, help us to keep all this in perspective. And, God, help us to be grateful for your sovereignty and for your goodness. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name. And the church says together, amen. God bless you. See you guys next week.